It's quite a journey, this thing we call being alive. And uh, finding ourselves here as we do at IMS on the family retreat in the midst of the sweetness and the chaos and at some times or times for some the tenderness of all the experience that arises, the uplift and the sadness, the complication and the simplicity. We sometimes might need to remember to get the mic to work. Sorry. Is that okay volume-wise? We sometimes might need to remember what, what we were drawn to in spiritual practice, what moves us or what engages us to be involved in this journey at all. And though there's perhaps many different ways we could express it or understand it, Essentially what we're involved in the exploration of, what we're concerned with here, is the cultivation and the development of wisdom and compassion and the many different ways that these qualities express themselves in life and through that expression transform life. It's natural and human to seek and to wish for freedom from conflict, from struggle, from the dissatisfaction that so much of life can seem to be entangled within. And that wish to be free, that wish to transform our lives, comes quite naturally because of our compassion, our caring for ourselves, our caring for life. It's a very natural, a very ordinary, a very human quality. It's not something necessarily esoteric or to be discovered or attained at the end of our spiritual journey. But it's very much there in the, in the beginnings and throughout the unfoldment of our journey. So we seek wisdom because it is wisdom that transforms suffering. It's wisdom that allows ourselves to free our hearts, allows this world to be transformed through seeing it clearly. And in the development of wisdom, we become more able to respond compassionately to life. So when we engage in meditation practice or when we come on a retreat such as this, we speak and we refer to the, the possibility and the aspiration that our practice and that what we're doing here together, and by our practice I mean not just our formal sitting meditation, but the practice of being with the children, the practice of being with each other, being with ourselves in and through all the range of our experience as it unfolds, that this practice is for the 
benefit not just of ourselves or not just of our family or not just, in fact, even of this community of people here together, important as that is, but it's truly for the benefit of something larger, for something greater, for something vaster that we could call life, that we could speak to as the benefit of all that lives. And so, coming from this aspiration, coming from this motivation, whether it be for out of a sense of just needing to resolve the suffering of my life or wishing, not framing it so much in terms of suffering, but maybe sensing it more in terms of a, a potentiality, that there's, there's more that's possible for this life, this remarkable, mysterious, inexplicable thing that happens between birth and death and in fact, beyond that, but certainly recognizable here, it's amazing that we're here at all. And we can sometimes sense that in that amazement or in that miraculousness of the fact that it's happening, that perhaps there's something more to be discovered in it, something more to be received through it, to be given to it, than what we've so far been able to discover to realize, to know and experience. And so that, that sense of exploring, of seeking, of, of looking, that we move from, that we move into our life through and with. How do we engage that here? How do we bring that to bear upon this situation? And the situation, again, is both this retreat and our lives. The beingness of alive that we call our own. To a large degree, we recognize in, in the Dharma teachings, and the teachings of the Buddha, that the suffering, the dissatisfaction, the conflict, and the sense of an absence of deep fulfillment comes from not truly understanding the way things are, not truly recognizing what is actual, and therefore being not in harmony with life, being in conflict with it, in fact. So we begin to explore, we begin to connect with our experience in order to be able to see it more clearly, to bring that quality of curiosity that we've introduced in the meditations with the children and equally with the adults, that sense of looking to see what's going on here. Because one of the features of our minds and the way we unconsciously and habitually tend to operate is that we don't really look that deeply at what's going on. This is something the Buddha pointed to again and again. We don't look that carefully. We tend to form a very quick surface impression. Then on the basis of that impression, we react. We engage in some familiar pattern of response to what we think is going on. And much of the time, what is actually going on is not as we have perceived it. If we were to perceive things truly as they are, and to act in accordance with that, suffering would not arise. This is the recognition of the wisdom traditions. And so we're concerned to look, to see what's going on, to be curious about our life, curious about our 
experience. Quite a number of years ago now, I was uh, practicing sitting meditation quite early in the morning in February in England. And it was a, co- a cold winter's day. And at the end of my period of meditation, I opened my eyes and I was looking out towards the window sill and the window in front at the end of the, the room where I was sitting. As I opened my eyes, I saw this little snail sitting on the windowsill. And it was quite a remarkable and beautiful little creature. It was just that moment of brightness after the practice and interest and engagement. I saw this little being on the windowsill. And my mind sort of clicked and started to re- respond to it because I was interested. And it was like, gosh, there's a snail in here. I thought, how did it get in here? And then I realized, because normally the window would be closed because it was actually really cold. But on this occasion, this morning, you know how quickly minds uh, start spinning. It was like, oh, that's right. And what flickered through my mind was the recollection that actually this window, the paint had been peeling on it, and so I'd needed to repaint it. Now, first of all, I had to trim some of the wood off because the paint had peeled, it had absorbed all this moisture, it had swollen up so you couldn't close it. So I'd shaved it with the plane, repainted it, but because I'd painted it, I couldn't close it. And all that just through my mind in about half a second. I don't know if you're familiar with that in your own meditation, how quickly the mind goes. And so that's why the window was open and how the snail came in. And I thought, then I thought, why did the snail come in? Why did the snail come in? And I realized, well, gosh, it's the middle of winter. Snails don't, I don't normally see snails in winter. It must be really cold out there. In fact, I can't imagine that snail would survive at the temperature it is at, you know, about 6.30 in the morning or 7 o'clock, as it was. So it's come in probably because it needs somewhere warm. And I felt, ah, oh, poor snail. I was sitting there watching it, little spiral design on its shell, and that soft, sort of luminous, slippery body, the little beady eyes on stalks. I was looking and thinking, gosh, it probably came in because it's too cold outside, but actually... There's nothing for it to eat in here. It's going to die anyway. And I was overcome with concern for this little being. I thought, what can I do? If it stays here, it's going to starve. If it goes back out there, it's going to freeze. And I was really quite perplexed and a little concerned by this. And then I thought, I know what? I can take the snail and put it in my neighbor's greenhouse. You use that word here? Greenhouse? Glasshouse? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I um, didn't think too much about what my ma- neighbour would say. <laughs> Whatever plants they might have. And I, just, I just felt so relieved. I thought, ah, it'll be nice and warm. Well, it'll be warm enough, probably. Certainly warmer than outside, and there'll be plenty there for it to eat. I put it in my neighbour's greenhouse. I felt relieved. I got up from my cushion. I reached out towards the snail. And it turned out to be a wood shaving. It turned out to be a wood shaving, a little curled up spiral of wood from when I'd planed the window. And in the moment of seeing it shift from being a living being to a wood shaving, something really struck me very deeply. It's like I'd been worried for this being. I'd felt for the struggles of its life. I'd even solved some of them. 
And it didn't exist. And it struck me very clearly how much of what we do is in reaction to something we haven't looked at that carefully. We haven't really stopped and allowed ourselves to meet fully what's here. And this is why we emphasize so much in the practice that sense of stopping and fully meeting what's here. Because if we don't, we're liable to misconstrue or misunderstand, to not see it clearly. And then to get ourselves into all kinds of entanglement because of that. So we observe, we look, we reflect upon our experience to see what's really going on. And what we begin to notice, what we begin to see, and this is some of what Catherine was speaking to last night, we see how it's changing, how it isn't the way we want it to be, how we can't really fix or control it. And when we try to, it just creates pressure and tightness and struggle. And it's so apparent, it seems, with children, or in fact with any other being. When we try and get someone to be the way we want them to be, have, have you ever tried that and succeeded? <laughs> you know, you should write a book if you have. I'm sure it would be a bestseller. Because mostly what we find is when we try and get someone to be the way we want them to be, it doesn't work. And the most fundamental experience and expression of that is, of course, with ourselves. When we try and get ourselves to be the way we want ourselves to be, what happens when we put pressure on ourselves? Mahatma Gandhi spoke of this once rather, I think, perceptively and beautifully. When he he said, you know, in my life I have only three adversaries. He said, my first adversary is the Indian people, my own people. I find them very hard to influence at all. They don't really seem to, they don't really seem to listen to me that much, but Sometimes I can make a little bit of a difference, and they do pay attention. He said, my second adversary is the, the British Empire. I also find them very hard to influence. They don't really seem to listen. I don't seem to be able to make much impression. But sometimes, yeah, it seems like things can change. He said, but you know, my greatest adversary... And a man upon whom it seems I have almost no influence at all is called Mohandas K. Gandhi. And I can't do anything with him. It's like we come into life with a coercive relationship to it when we don't see it for what it is, where we believe that somehow we, through force, through effort, through pressure, we can conform it into what we want it to be. And what we see again and again in practice is that that process itself creates a more profound and painful degree of suffering than whatever the particular thing we weren't satisfied with that we were trying to change was causing in the first place. It's like, you know, we see a child and it's maybe... 
It's our child, so we think it should be a good child in the meditation hall. And it's chattering away when it's supposed to be quiet. And we think, why can't it be quiet? Why can't my child be quiet? And we could see that maybe there's some disruption. Maybe people are noticing and thinking, oh, yeah, that's her child or that's that person's child. Yeah, we know. Yeah, They're all thinking about you know, what that means about me and my parenting or you and your parenting. We kind of get the sense it's really important. But as soon as we start feeling like, I've got to be quiet, I've got to be quiet. With, no, shh, you know, you can't speak. What happens when you try and damp that down? Most of the time it doesn't work, as most of you know, and of course most of you aren't trying to do this, but I'm sure that's because you've learnt through trying that it doesn't work. <laughs> but if one hadn't learnt that, one tries to damp it down and gets even more as aggravated or frustrated that it's not happening, it's not doing what I want. We feel so identified with that sense of it's my child. Someone else's child is making a noise. It might be a little annoying or irritating or actually we might be quite enjoying the sound of their voice. But it doesn't have that same pull on our heart. It doesn't have, it's just as much noise, but it's nowhere near as much problem. Seeing that sense of how the sense of mine comes into the situation, the sense of ownership comes into the situation and changes it profoundly. Of course, the even closer sense of mine arises in our own thoughts and processes inside. We've been just taking some time to reflect on them, to notice them arising, to share what we've seen with each other, some of the forms we've used today. And noticing how often it's a lot easier to hear that someone else had reactivity or distractedness or frustration in their mind than to see it in our own mind. It's, it's all right. I can feel quite sympathetic for somebody else, in fact, when they're feeling reactive or their mind is fragmented or distracted or there's something going on that they don't like experiencing. But when it's happening in ourselves, in our own minds, it's like, no, I don't want this. I don't want this. And so the struggle with life, the struggle with life, Look and see what's happening in that sense of being responsible for fixing or changing it. It's not something happening accidentally or randomly. It's something that happens when we take a sense of ownership of the experience and take a sense of responsibility for the content of the experience which is not actually in accord with the truth of the what's happening. It's not to say that there isn't some sense of appropriate ownership or appropriate responsibility. But what that is is different than maybe we often imagine. Because what arises has already arisen. There's nothing we can do about that. And if we look and see, experience keeps arising. Thoughts and feelings, sounds and sights, smells, tastes and touch. It just keeps arising and with it comes the sense that's often unexamined, that all this belongs to me, that somehow I have produced or created this, and that therefore I'm to blame when it's somehow inappropriate. Or, of course, the alternative, which is I've succeeded or I get all the credit 
when it looks kind of good or as in accordance with how I think it should look. That process of taking ownership, of sensing that there's an owner to the experience. In the teachings of the Buddha, in the, in the Buddha Dharma, this is something we're invited to examine, to look at, to explore, to see. What is it that owns all of this? Because the sense of ownership itself is simply another thought that says, it's me, it's mine. And I don't like it that way, or I want to keep it this way. Just as we look and see, you know, children, they just kind of seem to unfold. They don't have a master plan, I imagine, for how it's supposed to be going. It's kind of obvious. They're just responding as they unfold in their life. And then at some point, what comes in is the sense of, oh, there is a plan. There is somehow a way in which I'm supposed to be doing it that's different from how it is. And that there's a sense of okayness or not okayness that we refer to ourselves through that gets linked to that, that conceiving, that idea of how it should be or how it should not be. And the key in that is the sense of, of somehow a personal responsibility for the content of our experience. That if this feeling arises, and it's a difficult one, that I don't wish that somehow I've done something wrong, that I'm to blame for it. Or if this pattern of thinking that arises in my mind that doesn't seem very wholesome because it's reactive or angry or judgmental or bored or impatient, that somehow I've done something wrong and that's why this is happening. There's a, there's a, a way in which we're identifying with the experience that's not helpful there. Because we didn't ask it to happen this way. We didn't choose it. If any of us got up in the morning and decided that actually today would be a really good day to feel impatient, irritated, grumpy and frustrated with our children or with ourselves or our partners or IMS, I think I'll do that for the day. It sounds like a great plan. You know, I'd be interested to hear from them. But I don't think I would. Because... That's not what we do. We don't decide to make it happen the way it happens in terms of our inner experience. And yet somehow we feel a sense of ownership and responsibility for the content of it. Here in practice, what we're asked to do is begin to see that there's a process unfolding, there's something happening, that different conditions, different circumstances come together. And through those conditions, through those circumstances, what we experience arises. What we experience is configured. And so if we're tired because we didn't sleep well, because perhaps our child was upset in the night, or perhaps because somebody else's child was running up and down in the corridor, banging on the doors, having a great time. And actually it wasn't the sound of the child that kept us awake, it was the thought of who who was supposed to be in charge of the child to stop them doing it, that got us really angry, or whatever it is. That process, we need to see, oh, I'm affected by this. The heart is touched by this. My life is impacted by this. And rather than looking out to see, well, who should have done something differently, 
Rather than blaming someone else, blaming ourselves, or blaming the universe or some, you know, creator God who constructed it according to an obviously flawed plan, which would be comforting if we could do, because it kind of puts the responsibility somewhere else, doesn't actually make any difference. It doesn't change it. In fact, it makes it worse. So taking responsibility in this situation is looking at what's my response. How can I respond to this? Receiving what's here and responding. And seeing that we're not at the center of it in the way we imagine. That our experience is something unfolding to which we have the invitation to be present. To meet, to connect with, to touch and be touched by. And in being present, in being touched, to begin to sense which of the responses that arise within my heart, my mind, my body, which of those responses actually contribute to well-being? Which of those responses lead to happiness? Which of those responses actually serve what my deepest wish and aspiration for life is? Because so many of those responses that arise are as reactions, are as the pushing away or the grasping towards that we've spoken about. And if they're not seen, if they're acted upon, they simply lead to more suffering. So it's not about judging or condemning them. In terms of the Dharma, it's really important to get this clear. It's not about some kind of moral judgment of what is right or what is wrong. It's much more practical or pragmatic in terms of seeing, well, what contributes to that which I'm interested in? If getting angry contributed to happiness, then why not? But if getting caught in anger actually contributes to suffering, it doesn't make sense. That's not to say we can stop the anger arising, but we see that actually there's no value in enacting it. It doesn't serve us to dump it on someone. That doesn't mean there may not be an appropriate, and sometimes there is an appropriate and important place for saying no to that which is important, to taking clear and firm and sometimes direct action to bring to an end or to halt something that is harmful or inappropriate. Because that actually contributes to what we're seeking for, for what we're deeply interested in. And beginning to sense and feel where the different threads of our life move towards, where we're taken. So we examine, so we look, so we feel into our life. To do this, we have to feel into our life. We can't do it at a distance. We can't do it from memory. We can't do it from what worked the last time. We can only really do it from that place of connection with what is. What is true, what is here, what is now. And through perhaps beginning to question the filter that we place on it all, which tends to locate me over here inside this experience as something separate and disconnected and apart from you over there or everybody else out there who are likewise somehow enclosed or encapsulated within their experience and separate from me, apart from myself. 
the whole sense of I, of me, is bound in and fueled through the idea of separation, through the appearance that this being is somehow not the same, is a part of, is apart from, is disconnected from that being, or that being, or that being. And we believe this profoundly until examining it, until we look at it, until we see what's actually true. And that's not to say that, of course, this body isn't this body and that, you know, it's my job to wash it, not yours. And, you know, you know, you have a body, it's your job to feed it, not mine. Though perhaps there might be a situation where, you know, we can help each other with that. Of course, but it doesn't mean you have to somehow go around trying to take on everyone else's, you know, responsibility in that way. And yet, there's something different that happens when we start to look or even just question the idea that my life is something that's happening in here of which I am the owner. And that everything going on out there is an expression of the same thing, that same somebody else in there. Because if we look really carefully, we can't find that. If we look really carefully, what we see is experiences, thoughts and feelings, sights and sounds. This body changing day by day, month by month, year by year, beginning as these tiny, sweet, delicate little beings which we have with us and growing into these things. And we look at it and think, gosh, how did it do that? How did it do that? I've got no idea. For all the remarkable scientific explanations that we're blessed with, we really don't, we can say what it does and we can abstract and work out some of the mechanisms, but how it does that? It's like, it's alive, that's how it does that. And inevitably as it does it, it starts to not be quite so sort of comfortable to inhabit. Have you noticed that? It just happens that way. It's not so easy to inhabit the body as it gets older. And ultimately it becomes something we can't inhabit any longer. So what do we do with this opportunity? That the body is going through this process that we aren't in charge of is a message to us. That our mind is moving through a process that at times we cannot predict or control is a message to us. It's like, if this was really mine, or wouldn't it do what I tell it to? Or as the Buddha framed it, he said, you know, if you can't make this thing do what you want it to, does it make any sense to call it yours? If this thing keeps changing, this experience is changing, and if it's not amenable to your will, does it really make sense to relate to it as mine, as me, as what I am? Or isn't that just a recipe for frustration and struggle? So if we were to look at, if we were to relate to ourselves, to our experience, to our life as not so much mine, but something that's shared, something that's larger than that, 
What would that mean? How would that look? What we might notice is that the strength of the reactions and the impulses within us that we find that lead us to suffering, the reactivity born of self-centeredness, of craving, of selfishness, of fear, of anger, of rejection, of reactivity, that it centers around a sense of ownership, of me, a protecting of me. That if we question, we might see that actually we don't have to do something with that. We can see fear, we can see desire, we can make space for it to be there. And rather than having to do something to get the thing we want, or get rid of the thing we're afraid of, what we can begin to do is respond to the condition that it's happening at all. Rather than focusing on the sense of I that thinks it owns it, we can feel into the condition of that, that grasping or that fear itself and see that what it needs is holding. What it needs is to be turned towards with kindness, with care, with compassion. That when we're not so focused on a sense of me and other, of self and the rest of the world, what's naturally something that starts to reveal itself, what we start to feel, is that our connection, our relatedness, is actually the fabric that fills the space between us. Is actually the very texture of the life that we inhabit, that we are part of, which we can't see or feel with the, the, the familiar five senses through which we mostly interpret the world, through looking, through hearing, through tasting, through smelling, through touch. It doesn't work that way, but, but it registers in the, we could say, the, the more profound or the, the more deeply sensitive organ of our being, of our life. We'd call it our heart, we could call it our consciousness. We might just call it consciousness itself. But there's something that we begin to sense about life when we're not looking at it from the point of what's in it for me or what's it going to do to me. What can I get? What do I need to avoid? But more like, what can be offered here? What can be brought here? What can I offer to my own heart in a place of fear or a sense of neediness? What can I offer to another being in their place of fear or their place of demand, I must have this and I need it now and only this way? Like seeing that it is actually for our welfare sometimes to not allow ourselves to act out all our reactivity. And as we touched upon this morning, that idea of how do we respond to somebody else who's maybe acting from a place of reactivity? Certainly not to judge or condemn that, but realizing that for their own well-being, as well as others, sometimes we need to take action to say, no. But can we act from a place of caring for this being and ourselves when we do so? Can we find the space to stop and connect with the sensitivity that recognizes any action that's causing harm is born out of the suffering of that being? Look at it in yourself. Look at how it is for you. I've looked at it for myself many times. When I act... and. For all the practice of mindfulness and the cultivation of loving kindness and attentiveness and wisdom and compassion, still we do it. Still I do it. 
sometimes caught in reactivity, acting in a way that causes harm to another or myself. But if I look and I see in my life or in immediate situation, it's because at some way in that place I was afraid or I thought I wasn't going to get what I needed or I was going to be hurt in some way or was feeling already hurt in some way, not seen, not respected. And then react, push out. If we can see that that's what goes on in ourselves, we could perhaps trust that this is what goes on in each and every other being. This is the nature of beings. It happens this way. And so, how do we respond when we see that, when we recognize that? Circumstance, that reality. Suffering is caused by the blind reaction to suffering. There's a a story, an image that I find really useful to feel into what this is like or what this is about. But uh, I may, I can't remember if I may have shared it with uh, this, at this retreat before, but I find it really useful. And the image is, you could just uh, imagine this if you wish, to be going for a walk in the woods. And as you're walking in the woods, seeing a small puppy by a tree, and having some enjoyment and appreciation of small creatures reaching out to stroke the puppy. And as you do, it bites your hand. Just imagine your response in that moment. You bad dog, I'll teach you a lesson. Or whatever, you know, there's possibly a few stronger words in there. Um, and possibly, you know, one could imagine lifting the hand up to strike it. I'll teach it not to bite me. I was just, you know, it's got to learn a lesson here. I'm going to fix it. And as you do that, as you're reacting to this creature because it's bitten you and it hurt, and you're being friendly to it, kind to it, you thought. You see that its foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps that they use for catching small creatures. What happens in your heart and your mind at that moment? You Suddenly it's like, oh, wow. It's not a bad dog. It's not trying to harm me. It's in pain. It's suffering. It's afraid. It's trying to find a way out. And tragically, it's bitten someone who could have helped it. Which actually isn't serving its cause at all. But what it's saying is, help me. And if you can see that in that moment, what's your response going to be? Immediately you possibly feel a, little, I feel a little bit bad. Oh gosh, I was actually about to punish that poor creature. I actually want to save it. I want to help it here. And so then you want to get it out of that trap. You want to make sure it doesn't bite you anymore. You're not going to let it eat your arm while you're getting it out the trap. So you've got to be careful here. But you want to release it. And then maybe you want to go and have a talk to whoever put the trap there. That's part of the response. But that, it seems to me, would be natural for anyone to respond in that way. So having been on this walk at this time, we had this whole experience. Then imagining another scenario some time later, quite some time later, so you've forgotten all about the first time. You're walking in the woods and it's fall. It's all the leaves have pretty much dropped and you see a puppy. And liking small creatures, you reach out to stroke it and it bites your hand. You look at it and you see in the moment of being bitten, you recognize that it's standing shoulder deep in leaves. 
so you can't see its feet. What would it be for you in that moment to recognize that its foot was in a trap? Even though you couldn't see it. To me, what that suggests or what that requires is to understand that it's not the nature of a puppy to wish to harm you or to harm anyone, unless in itself it's in pain or suffering or fear and seeking to get out of that. We can't always see where the suffering in another being is. Sometimes we can't see, and often, in fact, we can't see where the root of our own suffering is. But when we see our reactivity or the reactivity of another, to hold together both that caring that seeks to not allow harm to be caused more than can be prevented, so not becoming a victim in that situation because we're so concerned for this other person's suffering, but out of compassion for oneself, out of compassion for another, finding a way to engage, to find out what's the suffering here? What needs releasing? What needs help? And that through all of that, there is no sense that somehow this is a good or a bad being, or that oneself is being good or bad according to what's happening. It's like seeing that suffering is there and needs a response. And that this is what we're called to, this is what we're invited to. That when we're in a place of fear or craving, what happens is a solidification, a hardening of a sense of me and you, of self and other, of this and all that out there that's somehow alien or foreign or different. And yet nothing out there is really that different than what's in here. And when we start to understand the mechanism of what's happening, of unconscious suffering leading to reactivity that in a spiral cyclic process just perpetuates itself, we look at the world, see how much of that goes on. It's on the front page of every newspaper pretty much every day, how that happens. That from the seeing of that naturally, there's a sense of, a different response, a sense of caring for, of wishing to move towards rather than away from. And that caring from speaks to and speaks from a deeper understanding of life in which the appearance of the separation is seen through, in which the appearance of self and other is seen for what it is, as only an appearance, as not an ultimate truth. And sometimes we feel this, we know this. I think it's one of, one of the magical things about family is we can sense so deeply another being's life. We really sense sometimes maybe we aren't separate from them. Sometimes maybe we wish we could be more so. It's speaking to something. Or, or here, as we get to know each other, we share with each other more deeply. Sometimes we can feel, even though we don't quite know why or what, but we feel another person's heart, their joy or their sadness, in a way that our own heart resonates, although they're not having a conversation with us. 
we, we, it's like there's, a, there's another organ that's involved in this process. And when, it gets, when we engage it, when we are in touch with that, that sense of self and other allows us to know which body we're supposed to be washing or brushing the teeth of or you know, taking care of in that way. There's a certain responsibility. And equally, for whose thoughts and actions we need to be responsible. But it doesn't buy into the idea that somehow we're apart from all this. And just as Shantideva, the, uh, I think he was about this, lived in about the 6th century, a, uh, a poet and a mystic of India. And he once said, Just as this hand is not separate from my feet, just as the hand naturally, I'm paraphrasing him, just naturally rubs the foot when it hurts, why should I not simply care for all beings in the same way? Would it not be possible to see and to say that just as the hand and the foot are limbs of the same body, that this body is simply one limb of embodied life? That we are not separate. And he said, when acting on behalf of others, no amazement arises in me. I seek or expect nothing in return, just as when feeding myself. The action is already complete. And it's like when the hand, the hand you know, the foot gets hurt, the hand rubs the foot. It's the most natural thing, isn't it? We don't, like the hand doesn't have to think about it. I think I'll rub that foot, it's hurting. It doesn't have to say, well, I'm going to practice compassion. I'm going to be a bodhisattva, the Mother Teresa of hands, and be nice to that foot which really needs some help here. It, it's not like that. It's just naturally the hand, which is over here, and it doesn't look like a foot particularly, rubs the foot. And of course, when you look at it, we talk about hand, we talk about foot, but where is the hand separate from the foot? It doesn't. It's just the way we speak about it because it has a different function. But where's the line? There isn't one. In the end, it's a hand foot and some other bits involved in between. And sometimes the hand rubs the foot. Sometimes the hand gets to hang around in the pocket while the foot has to schlep all over the place getting some food or whatever else. So look to see when we're imagining ourselves as separate from life, as separate from each other, look to see, is it really so? And look to, or let yourself feel, let yourself sense into your heart because the love and the caring and the compassion that's within us all inevitably and unstoppably knows this. But when we in our thinking about it divide this from that, self from other, good from bad, right from wrong, me and mine from everybody else. We somehow boundary, we somehow limit, we constrain the natural unboundedness of the heart. And in Dharma practice, we're inviting ourselves to re-release it, to allow the heart to be unbounded. And in that unboundedness, the love in our hearts finds its own way, just as water finds its own way to the ocean. 
so too our being finds its own way into life. And in that opening, in that unfolding, in that melting of the constriction of self that's like a solidification of water, like an iceberg that slowly dissolves into the water to discover itself as not different than the water. In that process, the dissolving of the boundary, the dissolving of the diff, of the difference and of the, the limitation that's born of identifying with some and yet not all of life, claiming ownership of a fragment when in fact it's much vaster than this. As that boundary, as that boundness is examined, is seen through, a natural boundlessness of love and an unboundedness of life is what we discover. And this is really the invitation of the Dharma teachings. This is the invitation of Dharma practice. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. May we all through our practice and in our lives come to know more and more deeply the boundlessness of our hearts, the unboundedness of life. For the welfare, the happiness and the liberation of all beings. Thank you again for your presence, for your practice, and uh, for being here. Please uh, blame me when you arrive slightly late to pick up your children. (laughs) It's just five past eight, so I hope the groups will forgive me. But uh, thank you for proceeding promptly to do that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.